Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Did you know that driving high is considered driving under the influence? That's right. Driving under the influence of marijuana is against the law in every state, even in states where marijuana is legal. That means driving high could get you a DUI. And if you think law enforcement officers can't tell when you're driving high, you're wrong. Your friends can tell. Your coworkers can tell. Even your parents can tell. Everyone can tell. So, what makes you think that law enforcement officers don't know when you're driving high? Driving under the influence of marijuana can slow your response time and change how you perceive time and speed. So, even if you think you're fine to drive when you're high, you're not. Because the bottom line is, if you feel different, you drive different. And driving high is driving under the influence. So remember, drive high, get a DUI. Paid for by NHTSA. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul Annual Appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. Cumbria is a ceremonial and non-metropolitan county in northwest England, bordering Scotland. West Cumbria is home to coastal towns like Workington and Whitehaven. A woman named Mildred Gale is buried at St. Nicholas Church in Whitehaven, and the only reason you might find that interesting is because she was George Washington's paternal grandmother. Derek Bird spent his life resenting his twin brother and believing everyone else was conspiring against him. When he thought that his own brother and lawyer were setting him up to go to prison, he decided to silence all of the people who were working against him. This is Monsters. In the early morning hours of June 2nd, 2010, Derek Bird drove to his twin brother, David's house, and quietly let himself inside. Family members would later say that it was common for David to leave his door unlocked in the quiet and seemingly safe village of Lamplu in West Cumbria. Derek entered the home and crept into the bedroom where David was still fast asleep. He had with him a 22 caliber rifle with a telescopic sight and a silencer. He also had a 12-gauge shotgun with him, but he had left that in his car. Inside the bedroom, Derek proceeded to shoot his twin brother 11 times in the head and torso. 
Derek left David's home and drove a few miles away to the home of Kevin Commons, a lawyer who had been working with him and David on some financial matters. He arrived at his house at about 5.30 a.m. and waited at the end of the driveway for hours. It wasn't until about 10 o'clock that Kevin finally left his house and drove down his driveway. When he saw Derek blocking the way, he got out of his car to see what was going on. Derek quickly got out of his car and shot him twice with the shotgun. Kevin wasn't killed immediately and tried to crawl back to his house, but Derek pulled his rifle from the car and shot him two more times, killing him. By this time, Derek had taken the silencer off his rifle and neighbors heard all four shots, prompting them to call authorities. Police dispatched a patrol vehicle to check out the claims, but since Kevin's house was set back down a private lane, his body wouldn't be discovered right away. By that time, Derek was long gone. Derek Bird was born on November 27, 1957, in Ennerdale Bridge near West Cumbria, UK. Derek had a twin brother named David who was five minutes younger than he was. The twins also had an older brother named Brian. Their parents, Joe and Mary Bird, were a typical couple in the area. Joe was a road worker for the local council and Mary stayed home and raised the boys. None of the boys were known to be troublemakers in school. They were reported to be average students. People say that Derek struggled to live outside of David's shadow. David was on the rugby team and Derek wasn't considered athletic. David was smarter and would become more successful. They both loved cars, but it would be David who made a career out of working on them. Joe and Mary divorced when the boys were young and Joe was the type of man who discouraged his sons from showing emotion. This is where Derek learned to bottle his emotions up, what many suspect was happening prior to the events of June 2nd. Joe was something of a wildlife expert and spent most of his weekends with his sons outdoors, hiking and hunting. Both Derek and David left school at 16 years old. David began a mechanics apprenticeship and Derek began working as a carpenter for an undertaker. I can only assume he was building caskets. At some point after high school, Derek began a relationship with a woman named Linda Mills, who he had met at school. It's been said that they were married, but no records supporting that have ever been found. They moved in together in 1978 and had their first son together, Graham, in 1985. People who knew them said that they were happy and excited to welcome the addition to their family. Derek eventually began working as a carpenter at a nearby nuclear plant in Sellafield. It was a good job and would have made a good career to support his family. In 1990, Derek was caught stealing wood from the plant and was fired. He was convicted of the theft and received a one-year suspended sentence. With that blemish on his record, it was nearly impossible to find another job. This led Derek to become a cab driver in the port town of Whitehaven. Derek had lived in the area his entire life and knew his way around well. He was also able to point out landmarks to visiting tourists and built up a number of regular customers. People who knew him said he was very friendly, which made him do all right compared to other cab drivers, but it was still a meager living. David, on the other hand, had become a successful auto mechanic and eventually opened his own garage. He owned a nice farmhouse on four acres. As far as Derek knew, David was living it up with all the success and money he could handle, and Derek was just scraping by. David was also happily married with three daughters while Derek's relationship was falling apart. A few years after his theft conviction, Linda became pregnant again, but she already knew it was too late. 
she left Derek around the time their second son, Jamie, was born. After the separation, Derek was said to be an extremely attentive father. He spent time with his sons whenever he could, and his love of motocross transferred to Graham, and he began competing in trials around the county. Derek was frequently in attendance at the races. Now living by himself, Derek became lonely, but he wasn't really great at meeting women. People who knew him said he would usually just stare at women and make them uncomfortable. His friends would make fun of his lack of dates. He did have a few relationships, though. None of them lasted very long. He dated a woman named Judith Fee for about a year. When her sister died of cancer, she went to her boyfriend for comfort, but upon hearing the news, he told her, that's life. This made it clear to Judith that it was time to move on. Derek was also an avid diver and belonged to the Solway Sub-Aqua Club. This group took a trip abroad every year to dive in a new location and they had been to Croatia, Egypt, the Canary Islands, and Thailand. It was in Thailand that Derek fell in love with the clear waters, sandy beaches, and warm climate, but he also fell in love with the women. He found that, with enough money, he was able to attract beautiful women and they didn't care what he looked like or what his social status was. He and his friends would spend their days scuba diving or at a number of shooting ranges where they were able to fire high-caliber rifles. Then by night, they would hit the bars and meet women. Friends that went to Thailand with him said that he would usually take a couple of women back to his room with him. Derek had started going to Thailand in 2003, but by 2007, his interest had narrowed to one specific woman. Han, which was most likely a pseudonym, worked at a bar that Derek was known to frequent. The bar owner said that when Derek first met her, he spent his entire trip trying to woo her. Then, every time he returned to Thailand, he would immediately ask for her, sometimes flying into a rage if she wasn't there. It's believed that Han had taken a break from working at the bar because she had become overwhelmed with Derek's obsession with her. The owner said that Derek lost sight of the fact that Han was seeing him for money and not in a relationship with him. He began acting like she was his girlfriend. During this time, Derek was telling all of his friends, both other cabbies and people in his diving group, about his girlfriend in Thailand. Guys being guys, they teased him about the situation, which got under Derek's skin. Soon, though, Han had agreed to come to England and live with him. An overly excited Derek sent her 1,000 pounds for the trip, but then she went silent. It was days later that Han sent Derek a message that simply told him to never contact her again and that she was seeing someone else. No mention of the money, no mention of coming to England. It seemed that Han wanted to get one last payday out of Derek before sending him to the curb. When his friends found out about this development, they began to poke fun at him about the situation. Derek played it off, but inside, he was growing more and more convinced that people were conspiring against him behind his back. Derek had been a cab driver for 20 years by the time of the shooting, and business in the taxi industry was dwindling. More cab drivers, less fares, and more regulations meant none of them were making as much as they used to. This created some tension between the cab drivers, but not as much as it created with Derek. He was sure that other cabbies were stealing fares from him and talking about him behind his back. Other cab drivers insisted that that was absolutely not happening, but Derek persisted in getting into arguments with other cabbies over accusations of stealing fares. One of the other drivers that he specifically disliked was 43-year-old Darren Rucastle. 
Another person that Derek began believing was conspiring against him was his twin brother. Family members said that they had never seen any type of feud between the brothers. Their mother, Mary, said she couldn't ever recall them having an argument. Derek and David spent a lot of time at their mother's house, and every one of their relatives said they always got along great. One of the last times they were seen together was at a local track where they were testing out an off-road vehicle that David had just finished working on. A witness said they spent hours driving around laughing and having a great time. After their father, Joe, died in 1998, Derek expected to receive a share of his estate. Unfortunately, after debts and taxes, there wasn't really much left. That was a disappointment, but then Derek learned that David had received a loan of 25,000 pounds from their father the year before, most likely to use for his business. A document stated that the gift of 25,000 pounds was to be deducted from his share of the estate when it was divided up. This angered Derek and proved in his mind how his father played favorites between the three sons. He did believe, however, that when his mother passed away, their home would be sold and the problem would be fixed. Eventually, he learned that Mary's will said that her estate would be split up equally between the brothers, and nothing stipulated a repayment of £25,000 on David's part. Derek saw this as a slap in the face, since he was the one who spent most of his adult life taking care of their mother. Now he was going to get less money than he felt he was owed. By 2010, Derek owed some tax money and he was sure that the Revenue and Customs Agency was investigating him and would throw him in prison. It's been confirmed that he owed about £60,000 because he hadn't declared his full income from his self-employment as a cab driver for many years. Since people paid their cab fares in cash, it was easy for Derek to claim he made less money than he did. A friend said that Derek had hidden thousands of dollars in cash under the floorboards of his house. At one point, Derek became afraid that the bills would no longer be legal tender since the country was phasing out older versions of paper money. He told his diving buddies about his tax problems after getting drunk in Croatia. He asked one of the men who had been in prison what it was like because he was absolutely certain that he was going to be sent away for tax evasion. Finally, Derek spoke to David about his tax problem and David recommended he talk to a lawyer named Kevin Commons. 60-year-old Kevin Commons was a highly respected lawyer who had a successful law firm. He had started KJ Commons in the 80s and became known as a lawyer who was out to help people, not just turn a profit. People who knew him said that he would help everyone who came through his door, regardless of their ability to pay. His success meant that he could have easily retired, but he felt it was his duty to continue to help those in need of his service. One thing that Kevin did during all of his meetings was to record the conversations. This was so that he could go back and make sure he hadn't missed anything. It wasn't long before Derek started believing that David and Kevin were working together to get him arrested for tax evasion. In Derek's mind, having his meetings with Kevin recorded was a clear sign that they were trying to get recorded proof of his tax evasion. Why he thought that was anybody's guess. He might have believed that David was just out to ruin him. He had already stolen some of his inheritance, now he was going to send him to prison. With Derek in prison, David and Brian could split their mother's estate. Derek's family was working against him, the other cab drivers were working against him, Han was working against him, and now the lawyer was working against him. As far as Derek was concerned, the entire world was working against him. 
One of Derek's friends said that he had changed after an incident in 2007. Derek had driven four teenagers in his cab, but when they arrived at their destination, the teens jumped from the car and ran away without paying. Derek chased them down, and when he caught up, one of the teens hit him in the face and Derek fell to the ground where he hit his head on the pavement and lost consciousness. He had a laceration on his head and lost two teeth. The boy was charged and ordered to pay Derek 250 pounds in compensation, but from then on, Derek said he suffered from anxiety when driving his cab. His friends said he started drinking more heavily after the attack as well. Whatever caused Derek's paranoia, it continued building until it completely took over his life. People said that he was happy and friendly up until the day before the shooting. It was only then that anybody who ran into Derek said that he seemed off. Not that he was going to commit a mass shooting, but that he didn't respond to them like he was in a daze. Otherwise, he kept his feelings bottled up inside. He kept his feelings about the other cab drivers and his brother and lawyer hidden from everyone he knew. He thought all the other cabbies were plotting against him, but when he was around them, he just smiled and played along with their jokes. Though a few people knew about his various problems, Derek's mother Mary and his older brother Brian were completely in the dark. The whole family was together the Sunday before the shootings and Derek had never revealed his tax problems to anyone other than David. He also would have never wanted his own sons to know that he was being investigated for tax evasion. To them, until the day he died, he was a friendly and loving father. These secrets continued to fester inside Derek until, as far as he was concerned, everyone was against him. We'll be right back. I love that sound. It's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business, so startups, upstarts, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. Scaling your business is a journey of endless possibility. Reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. Synchronize your online and in-person sales. Gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. Go to shopify.com forward slash monsters, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and to get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com forward slash monsters right now. Shopify.com forward slash monsters. Do you know why free trials renew without your consent? It's a business scam out to get you. Don't let greedy corporations pocket your money. Download Truebill to take control of your subscriptions. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions that you don't need, want, or simply forgot about. On average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill. Because companies make subscriptions hard to cancel, Truebill makes it incredibly simple. Just link your accounts and Truebill will cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tap. And your Truebill concierge is there when you need them to cancel unwanted subscriptions, so you don't have to. During the pandemic, we signed up for all sorts of streaming services while we were stuck inside. But now that we've been getting out more, I've been able to cancel a whole bunch of those subscriptions and save some money. I use Truebill, and you should too. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at Truebill.com forward slash this is monsters. Go right now, Truebill.com forward slash this is monsters. It could save you thousands a year. 
It was early in the morning on June 2nd when Derek loaded his 22 caliber rifle and his 12-gauge shotgun into his Citroen Picasso and drove to David's house where he killed his twin brother. By 2010, David and his wife had separated and his daughters were adults. He lived alone in his farmhouse with only his beloved dog Jed to keep him company. After killing David, Derek drove to Kevin's house and killed him. He had taken out the two people that he believed were not only trying to get him arrested for tax evasion, but he believed that they had turned him into revenue and customs in the first place. Around 10.30, Kevin headed to Whitehaven Town Center, where the cab drivers hung out and waited for fares. Derek was specifically seeking out fellow cab driver Darren Rucastle. Derek had a number of problems with Darren, a man that he used to be pretty good friends with. First, Derek believed that Darren had an affair with Linda Mills while they were dating, but everyone involved said that was completely untrue. It seemed that whether or not something was true was not something that concerned Derek anymore. These ideas lived in his head despite there being no evidence that they were accurate. The other issue that was happening at the cab rank in Whitehaven was queue jumping. Normally, the cabbies would line up in the rank and take turns picking up fares. Cabbies from other areas had started showing up to pick up more fares and they weren't observing the unwritten rules of the Whitehaven cabbies. Instead of waiting in the queue for their turn, they were driving up and picking up fares before they were able to make it to the cab rank. In an effort to keep up, some of the local cabbies stopped using the rank and started queue jumping themselves. One of those locals was Darren. Derek had a problem with that and felt they should be stopping the new cabbies, not joining them and making the problem worse. Darren needed to make money, though, and believed he had no other choice. The issue had become heated multiple times in the weeks leading up to the events of June 2nd. Now, Derek was going to fix the issue once and for all. Derek was working the morning shift at the cab rank when Derek found him standing outside, smoking a cigarette and drinking a cup of coffee. Derek called out his name, and when Darren turned toward his fellow cabbie, Derek shot him in the face with the shotgun. Darren died immediately. Derek got back in his car and began circling the area, seemingly looking for other cabbies. When he spotted Don Reed standing on the street, he pulled up and fired his shotgun. Fortunately, Don was able to dive out of the way and only suffered minor injuries on his back. He was able to crawl over to Darren's body where he intended to render first aid. That was until he saw the injury and realized that he was already gone. Don didn't have any problems with Derek and believed he was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Derek drove up beside another cab driver, Paul Wilson, and called out his name. When Paul knelt down to talk to Derek, someone he considered a friend, he came face to face with the barrel of a shotgun. When the gun went off, Paul flinched, thinking the gun had been loaded with a blank and Derek was pulling a prank on him. He quickly realized that the gun was loaded with real ammunition and some of the pellets had grazed his cheek. This attack happened right outside of the Whitehaven police station, so Paul ran inside and alerted authorities to the shooting. Paul told him that Derek was a friend and was able to give them his cell phone number. Police at the station alerted patrol cars in the area to be on the lookout for Derek Bird and gave a physical description of him and his vehicle. By this time, Derek had sped away. Up the road, Derek saw 15-year-old Ashley Gaster walking to the store to run an errand. He slowed down and asked her if she wanted something. 
Not knowing what he meant, she looked into the vehicle and saw a shotgun and dropped to the ground, causing Derek to miss as he shot her. She jumped to her feet and started running away when Derek fired again but missed that time as well. It seemed as though Derek had gone from shooting people he had a grudge against to just shooting anyone who crossed his path. Ashley was a complete stranger, a teenage girl who had never even spoken to him, let alone done anything to have wronged him in any way. Was Derek just targeting teenagers because he was still mad at the teenagers who ran out on their fair and the one who attacked him in 2007? There's no way to know. Derek made his way south and spotted another cab driver who considered himself one of Derek's friends, Terry Kennedy. As he approached the other cabbie, he waved to have Terry pull up next to him. Having no reason to suspect anything was wrong, Terry pulled up and immediately saw the barrel of a shotgun sticking out of Derek's car. Terry put his right hand up as Derek pulled the trigger, attempting to shoot the fellow cabbie in the face. Terry was able to pull his foot off the clutch, causing the car to lunge forward out of Derek's line of fire. Derek sped away. When the information about Derek was broadcast to police in the area, many of the patrol officers had been called to Frisington when the body of Kevin Commons had been discovered. One of the officers in the police station, Police Constable Mick Taylor, ran out of the station and flagged down a passing motorist. Paul Goodwin pulled over in his blue Ford Escort and agreed to assist. The two men chased after Derek until they reached Coach Road, where they witnessed Derek shoot into Terry's vehicle. At that point, they discontinued their pursuit of the gunmen and stayed at the scene to help the victims. Terry had a customer with him at the time who had been sitting in the front passenger seat. Despite being covered in blood, her injuries were minor in comparison to Terry's. He had taken most of the damage to his right hand, and once at the hospital, doctors made the difficult decision to amputate his hand. Constable Taylor and Paul Goodwin resumed their pursuit of Derek after they were done helping the victims, but he had too big of a head start and they lost him. During this time, police at the station were attempting to call Derek on his cell phone, but he wasn't answering. Derek traveled south down the coast before heading east to the town of Egremont. There he saw 57-year-old Susan Hughes walking home with groceries. Susan was a full-time caretaker to her disabled daughter and had just gone to the local co-op to stock up on supplies. Derek pulled his car over and shot her twice in the stomach with his shotgun. He left as a local resident pulled up on his bicycle and found Susan's body. He tried to render first aid, but she died from her wounds after a few minutes. While driving through Egremont, Derek spotted 71-year-old Kenneth Fishburne, a veteran and former security guard for Sellafield Nuclear Plant. Kenneth was just walking into town when he was shot in the back and killed. Some people questioned if Derek recognized Kevin from his time working at the nuclear plant, but he hadn't worked there for 20 years. He was likely still bitter about being fired, but would he have remembered a security guard from that long ago? Soon, Derek pulled up near another stranger, this time 59-year-old Les Hunter. As Les ducked down to see what the man wanted, Derek fired his shotgun, but Les managed to turn his head, causing the pellets to hit him in the cheek and ear, but he survived. Derek's journey to Egremont wasn't random. It was on his way to Wilton, where a man named Jason Carey lived. Jason was a member of the Solway Sub-Aqua Club and had recently reprimanded Derek for taking a novice diver into deep water. Jason was absolutely right, but to Derek, being shamed in front of other people was too big of a blow to his ego and he began hating Jason intensely. 
Derek arrived at Jason's home and banged on the door, but Jason was still in bed having previously worked a night shift. By the time Jason's wife restrained their dog and made it to the door, Derek was already driving away. She had missed him by mere seconds, which had likely saved her and her husband's lives. As he drove through Wilton, he saw 68-year-old Jennifer Jackson walking down the street on her way to meet her husband, 67-year-old James Jackson. Derek continued his pattern of pulling up next to strangers and summoning them to his car. These were friendly little towns, and most people had no reason to not answer the call of a stranger in need. As Jennifer turned to look at who was talking to her, Derek shot and killed her. As he drove up the road, he passed James, who was outside talking to some neighbors. Once he was about 15 meters past the group, he stopped his car and backed up. The neighbors assumed he was coming back to ask directions, but as he got closer, he opened fire out of his car window. One of the neighbors, 43-year-old Christine Hunter, was hit in the back and survived. James was hit in the head and died. He and his wife died down the street from each other and never even knew it. Derek headed south and in the town of Carlton, he saw Isaac Dixon out walking his dog. Isaac was a mole catcher who also worked at Sellafield Nuclear Plant, but it's unclear if the men knew each other. As Derek passed by, he shot and killed the man and drove away. He continued heading south, and in Gosforth, he spotted 31-year-old Gary Purdom. Gary was a semi-professional rugby player, which made him well-known in the area. He had been outside trimming his hedges when Derek stepped out of his car and shot him twice in the head. As Derek headed to the beach town of Seascale, news of the rampage began to spread. Once Derek was spotted in the area, Seascale residents began to take cover. Unfortunately, 23-year-old Jamie Clark hadn't heard the news, and despite his fiance trying to get a hold of him, he would remain unaware of the danger coming toward him. Jamie was a real estate agent and was on his way back from showing a house when Derek fired directly into his vehicle, causing him to crash and roll his car. Jamie died from gunshot wounds. Derek crashed his car into an oncoming vehicle and shot at the driver, 40-year-old Harry Berger, but he survived. After that, he came upon 64-year-old Michael Pike, who was riding his bicycle. Derek shot out his back tire and then shot Michael in the face with his shotgun, killing him. Not far down the road, Derek saw 66-year-old Jane Robinson delivering catalogs and called her over to his car. As soon as she ducked down to see what he wanted, he shot her in the face with his shotgun, killing her. She would be Derek's last murder, and though Derek would continue to shoot at people as he drove, he wouldn't take any more lives that day, outside of his own. By now, police helicopters were in the air, tracking Derek's movements. Armed police had been hot on his tail when he ended his killing spree in Seascale, and the helicopters reported his vehicle traveling to the town of Boot and heading into the Lake District National Park. This time of year, the park was filled with people camping, picnicking, and hiking. Derek sped through the park and took pot shots at anyone he saw. He hit 30-year-old Samantha Christie while she was trying to take a picture, but she would survive her wounds. While speeding through the park, Derek hit the stone wall on the side of the road and damaged his tire. After that, he got out of his car with his rifle and began walking into the woods. There were multiple people around asking if he was alright, but he didn't really respond and didn't try to shoot any of them. He just carried his rifle across a small bridge over a creek and disappeared into the forest. 
Some of the bystanders called the police, and others went to check out the car that Derek had abandoned and found a shotgun, a silencer, and loads of spent shells. At 1.30 p.m. on June 2nd, 2010, a single gunshot rang out from the forest. Derek Bird had ended his massacre by ending his own life. Over the course of about eight hours, Derek Bird murdered 12 people and injured 11 more before taking his own life. After the shooting, an investigation revealed that he was wrong about most of what he was paranoid about. It was discovered that he had been stashing money in his house, and it turned out that he had more money available than David. Neither David nor Kevin had turned him into revenue and customs, and though it was true they were investigating his tax contributions for previous years, there was very little chance that he was going to be sent to prison. The cab drivers in Whitehaven were not conspiring against him behind his back. They were all just working people who were trying to make a living just like he was. All of them had nothing but nice things to say about their relationship with him leading up to June 2nd. Derek Bird was having problems, and when he sought help for those problems, he believed people were actually working against him when they were really trying to help him. Instead of talking to those people, he chose to grab a gun and start shooting random people. He could have acted like a responsible human being, but instead, he acted like a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Jennifer Harris disappeared from Bonham, Texas on Mother's Day 2002. The secrets in the Jennifer Harris case have been hidden for 20 years. When someone disappears, you have to look at who would benefit from their disappearance. What happened to Jennifer Harris, and who is responsible for her death? Coming May 10th, Final Days on Earth, Season 2, The Life and Death of Jennifer Harris. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know that driving high is considered driving under the influence? That's right. Driving under the influence of marijuana is against the law in every state, even in states where marijuana is legal. That means driving high could get you a DUI. And if you think law enforcement officers can't tell when you're driving high, you're wrong. Your friends can tell. Your coworkers can tell. Even your parents can tell. Everyone can tell. So, what makes you think that law enforcement officers don't know when you're driving high? Driving under the influence of marijuana can slow your response time and change how you perceive time and speed. So, even if you think you're fine to drive when you're high, you're not. Because the bottom line is, if you feel different, you drive different. And driving high is driving under the influence. So remember, drive high, 
Get a DUI. Paid for by NHTSA. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul annual appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. Christmas is the season of giving, but it can be difficult to know who on your list wants what. Save yourself the guesswork by giving the gift of choice. Whether you're buying for the foodie, fashionista or homebird of the family, they'll love a Dunn Stores gift card. They can choose from everything we have in store and online, from fashion to homewares to groceries. It's the perfect choice to make this Christmas. Visit dunstores.com for details. Make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on. See CERTAIreland.ie 